Chapter 13 of The Beast of Tarzan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Christopher. The Beast of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 13 Escape. For a moment, Rokoff stood sneering down upon Jane Clayton. Then his eyes fell to the little bundle in her lap. Jane had drawn one corner of the blanket over the child's face, so that to one who did not know the truth it seemed to be but sleeping. "'You have gone to a great deal of unnecessary trouble,' said Rokoff, "'to bring the child to this village. "'If you had attended to your own affairs, I should have brought it here myself. "'You would have been spared the dangers and fatigue of the journey, "'but I suppose I must thank you for relieving me of the inconvenience "'of having to care for a young infant on the march.' This is the village to which the child was destined from the first. Maganwazam will rear him carefully, making a good cannibal of him, and if you ever chance to return to civilization, it will doubtless afford you much food for thought as you compare the luxuries and comforts of your life with the details of the life your son is living in the village of the Waganwazam. Again I thank you for bringing him here for me, and now I must ask that you surrender him to me, that I may turn him over to his foster parents." As he concluded, Rokoff held out his hands for the child, a nasty grin of vindictiveness upon his lips. To his surprise, Jane Clayton rose, and without a word of protest, laid the little bundle in his arms. "'Here is the child,' she said. "'Thank God he is beyond your power to harm.' Grasping the import of her words, Rokoff snatched the blanket from the child's face to seek confirmation of his fears. Jane Clayton watched his expression closely. She had been puzzled for days for an answer to the question of Rokoff's knowledge of the child's identity. If she had been in doubt before, the last shred of that doubt was wiped away as she witnessed the terrible anger of the Russian as he looked upon the dead face of the baby, and realized that at the last moment his dearest wish for vengeance had been thwarted by a higher power. Almost throwing the body of the child back into Jane Clayton's arms, Rokoff stamped up and down the hut, pounding the air with his clenched fist and cursing terribly. At last he halted in front of the young woman, bringing his face down close to hers. "'You are laughing at me,' he shrieked. "'You think that you have beaten me, eh? I'll show you, as I have shown the miserable ape you call husband, what it means to interfere with the plans of Nicholas Rokoff. You have robbed me of the child. I cannot make him the son of a cannibal chief. But—' And he paused as though to let the full meaning of his threat sink deep. "'I can make the mother the wife of a cannibal.' and that I shall do, after I have finished with her myself. If he had thought to wring from Jane Clayton any sign of terror, he failed miserably. She was beyond that. Her brain and nerves were numb to suffering and shock. To his surprise, a faint, almost happy smile touched her lips. She was thinking with thankful heart that this poor little corpse was not that of her own wee Jack, and that, best of all, Rokoff evidently did not know the truth. She would have liked to have flaunted the fact in his face, but she dared not. If he continued to believe that the child had been hers, so much safer would be the real Jack wherever he might be. She had, of course, no knowledge of the whereabouts of her little son. She did not know even that he still lived, and yet there was the chance that he might. It was more than possible that without Rokoff's knowledge this child had been substituted for hers by one of the Russian's confederates, and that even now her son might be safe with friends in London where there were many, both able and willing, to have paid any ransom which the traitorous conspirator might have asked for the safe release of Lord Greystoke's son. 
She had thought it all out a hundred times since she had discovered that the baby which Anderson had placed in her arms that night upon the Kincaid was not her own, and it had been a constant and gnawing source of happiness to her to dream the whole fantasy through in its every detail. No, the Russian must never know that this was not her baby. She realized that her position was hopeless. With Anderson and her husband dead, there was no one in all the world with a desire to succor her who knew where she might be found. Rokoff's threat, she realized, was no idle one. That he would do, or attempt to do, all that he had promised she was perfectly sure, but at the worst it meant but a little earlier release from the hideous anguish that she had been enduring. She must find some way to take her own life before the Russian could harm her further. Just now she wanted time, time to think and prepare herself for the end. She felt that she could not take the last awful step until she had exhausted every possibility of escape. She did not care to live unless she might find her way back to her own child, but, slight as such hope appeared, she would not admit its impossibility until the last moment had come, and she faced the fearful reality of choosing between the final alternatives, Nicholas Rokoff on one hand, and self-destruction upon the other. "'Go away,' she said to the Russian. "'Go away and leave me in peace with my dead. Have you not brought sufficient misery and anguish upon me without attempting to harm me further? What wrong have I ever done to you that you should persist in persecuting me? You are suffering for the sins of the monkey you chose when you might have had the love of a gentleman, of Nicholas Rokoff, he replied. But where is the use in discussing the matter? We shall bury the child here, and you will return with me at once to my own camp. Tomorrow I shall bring you back and turn you over to your new husband, the lovely Maganwazam. Come. He reached out for the child. Jane, who was on her feet now, turned away from him. I shall bury the body, she said. Send some men to dig a grave outside the village. Rokoff was anxious to have the thing over and get back to his camp with his victim. He thought he saw in her apathy a resignation to her fate. Stepping outside the hut, he motioned her to follow him, and a moment later, with his men, he escorted Jane beyond the village, where, beneath a great tree, the black scooped a shallow grave. Wrapping the tiny body in a blanket, Jane laid it tenderly in the black hole, and, turning her head that she might not see the moldy earth falling upon the pitiful little bundle, she breathed a prayer beside the grave of the nameless waif that had won its way into the innermost recesses of her heart. Then, dry-eyed but suffering, she rose and followed the Russian through the Stygian blackness of the jungle, along the winding leafy corridor that led from the village of Maganwazam, the black cannibal, into the camp of Nicholas Rokoff, the white fiend. Beside them, in the impenetrable thickets that fringed the path, rising to arch above it and shut out the moon, the girl could hear the stealthy, muffled footfalls of great beasts, and ever round about them rose the deafening roars of hunting lions, until the earth trembled to the mighty sound. The porters lighted torches now, and waved them upon either hand to frighten off the beast of prey. Rokoff urged them to greater speed, and from the quavering note in his voice Jane Clayton knew that he was weak from terror. The sounds of the jungle night recalled most vividly the days and nights that she had spent in a similar jungle with her forest god with the fearless and unconquerable Tarzan of the apes. Then there had been no thoughts of terror, though the jungle noises were new to her, and the roar of the lion had seemed the most awe-inspiring sound upon the great earth. How different it would be now if she knew that he was somewhere there in the wilderness seeking her. Then indeed would there be that for which to live, and every reason to believe that succor was close at hand. But he was dead. It was incredible that it should be so. There seemed no place in death for that great body, and those mighty thews. Had Rokoff been the one to tell her of her lord's passing, she would have known that he lied. 
There could be no reason, she thought, why M'Ganwazam should have deceived her. She did not know that the Russian had talked with the savage a few minutes before the chief had come to her with his tale. At last they reached the rude boma that Rokoff's porters had thrown up around the Russian's camp. Here they found all in turmoil. She did not know what it was all about, but she saw that Rokoff was very angry, and from bits of conversation which she could translate she gleaned that there had been further desertions while he had been absent, and that the deserters had taken the bulk of his food and ammunition. When he had done venting his rage upon those who remained, he returned to where Jane stood under guard of a couple of his white sailors. He grasped her roughly by the arm and started to drag her toward his tent. The girl struggled and fought to free herself, while the two sailors stood by, laughing at the rare treat. Rokoff did not hesitate to use rough methods when he found that he was to have difficulty in carrying out his designs. Repeatedly he struck Jane Clayton in the face, until at last, half-conscious, she was dragged within his tent. Rokoff's boy had lighted the Russian's lamp, and now at a word from his master he made himself scarce. Jane had sunk to the floor in the middle of the enclosure. Slowly her numb senses were returning to her, and she was commencing to think very fast indeed. Quickly her eyes ran round the interior of the tent, taking in every detail of its equipment and contents. Now the Russian was lifting her to her feet, and attempting to drag her to the camp cot that stood at one side of the tent. At his belt hung a heavy revolver. Jane Clayton's eyes riveted themselves upon it. Her palm itched to grasp the huge butt. She feigned again to swoon, but through her half-closed lids she waited her opportunity. It came just as Rokoff was lifting her upon the cot. A noise at the tent door behind him brought his head quickly about and away from the girl. The butt of the gun was not an inch from her hand. With a single, lightning-like move she snatched the weapon from its holster, and at the same instant Rokoff turned back toward her, realizing his peril. She did not dare fire for fear the shot would bring his people about him, and with Rokoff dead she would fall into hands no better than his, into a fate probably even worse than he alone could have imagined. The memory of the two brutes who stood and laughed as Rokoff struck her was still vivid. As the rage and fear-filled countenance of the Slav turned toward her, Jane Clayton raised the heavy revolver high above the pasty face, and with all her strength dealt the man a terrific blow between the eyes. Without a sound he sank, limp and unconscious to the ground. A moment later the girl stood beside him, for a moment at least, free from the menace of his lust. Outside the tent she again heard the noise that had distracted Rokoff's attention. What it was she did not know, but fearing the return of the servant and the discovery of her deed, she stepped quickly to the camp table, upon which burned the oil lamp and extinguished the smudgy, evil-smelling flame. In the total darkness of the interior she paused for a moment to collect her wits and plan for the next step in her venture for freedom. About her was a camp of enemies. Beyond those foes the black wilderness of savage jungle people by hideous beasts of prey, and still more hideous human beasts. There was little or no chance that she could survive even a few days of the constant dangers that would confront her there, but the knowledge that she had already passed through so many perils unscathed, and that somewhere out in the faraway world a little child was doubtless at that very moment crying for her, filled her with the determination to make the effort to accomplish the seemingly impossible, and cross that awful land of horror in search of the sea, and the remote chance of succor that she might find there. Rokoff's tent stood almost exactly in the center of the boma. Surrounding it were the tents and shelters of his white companions and the natives of his safari. To pass through these and find egress through the boma seemed a task too fraught with insurmountable obstacles to warrant even the slightest consideration, and yet there was no other way. To remain in the tent until she should be discovered would be to set at naught all that she had risked to gain her freedom. 
and so with stealthy step and every sense alert she approached the back of the tent to set out upon the first stage of her adventure. Groping along the rear of the canvas wall, she found that there was no opening there. Quickly she returned to the side of the unconscious Russian. In his belt her groping fingers came upon the hilt of a long hunting knife, and with this she cut a hole in the back wall of the tent. Silently she stepped without. To her immense relief she saw that the camp was apparently asleep. In the dim and flickering light of the dying fire she saw but a single sentry, and he was dozing upon his haunches at the opposite side of the enclosure. Keeping the tent between him and herself, she crossed between the small shelters of the native porters to the boma wall beyond. Outside, in the darkness of the tangled jungle, she could hear the roaring of lions, the laughing of hyenas, and the countless nameless noises of the midnight jungle. For a moment she hesitated, trembling. The thought of the prowling beast out there in the darkness was appalling. Then, with a sudden brave toss of her head, she attacked the thorny boma wall with her delicate hands. Torn and bleeding though they were, she worked on breathlessly until she had made an opening through which she could worm her body, and then at last she stood outside the enclosure. Behind her lay a fate worse than death, at the hands of human beings. Before her lay an almost certain fate, but it was only death, sudden, merciful, and honorable death. Without a tremor, and without regard, she darted away from the camp, and a moment later the mysterious jungle had closed about her. End of chapter 13